0: Morning. morning. Uh, my name is David Soren. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Hey, years ago, there was a shipwreck, and uh, after the shipwreck, there was only one survivor, and the survivor washed up on this uninhabited island, and he was exhausted, and like many of us would, he cried out to God, asking God to save him, and every day he would go out to the beach, and he would scan the horizon looking for a ship, something to save him, but nothing was coming. Well, finally, he realizes I might be here for a while, and so he starts talking to a volleyball. (laughs) No, it's a different story. Okay. Uh, (laughs) So he decides, I'm going to build this uh, rough hut, right, and I'll put whatever few possessions I have into this hut. Well, the next day, he goes out looking for food, and on his way back to his new hut, he sees that it's burning down, and he's so frustrated, and he's so angry. The worst thing has happened. And yet, shockingly, not long after that, a ship appears to be coming closer and closer to the island, and eventually, he's rescued. He gets on board, and the very first thing he does is he asks the crew, how in the world did you know that I was here? And they said, oh, we saw your smoke signal. Okay. Now, we're going to talk about this today, and we're going to talk about how God can use anything, even the really hard things, for our good. And we're going to talk about how sometimes that's easy to see, and sometimes it takes a while, and sometimes we won't see it this side of eternity. And we're going to continue to do so as we are continuing in our God Never Fails series, where we're teaching verse by verse through Romans chapter 8 in the Bible. Uh, Romans was a letter that was written by a man called the Apostle Paul. He wrote it to the earliest Christians in Rome about 25 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So let's take a look at it. Everybody uh, get out some sort of Bible. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles under the chair. Uh, We are going to be on page 772 this morning. There is a lot, and I mean a lot, packed in our five verses today from 26 to 30. And I'm not going to be able to hit every interesting theological tangent here, but we will concentrate on the main and really what is the most important point of this passage. So. 7.72, 7.72, uh, find the big number eight, that's the chapter, and the small number uh, 26, that's the verse we left off on. Okay, <clears throat> here's what Paul writes. He says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Okay, let's pause there for just a minute. So Paul is continuing in this discussion on suffering that we went in depth on last week, and Paul says that the Holy Spirit, who's God, intercedes for us. It means He prays for us in our suffering, and He says He does so with wordless groans. Now, some people take that to mean uh, speaking in tongues, like a heavenly language. Well, others say, you no, know, the Spirit's just praying the emotions of our hearts. Now, if we had 30 more minutes, I would love to talk about this, but we don't, so don't hate me. The most important thing that I want you to get from these two verses is that in your deep suffering, God loves you so much that the Spirit searches your heart and is guiding you towards praying the will of God. Again, I really wish we could have dived deeper in this. I probably should have added like two more weeks to the series, but I'm not perfect. Oh, well. Okay. Let's get to what is the most famous part of this passage. It may be the most famous verse in the chapter, maybe even the most famous verse in the entire letter of Romans. And yet to others, it sometimes is the most frustrating verse or the most confusing to understand. Well, that's quite the introduction. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Romans eight 28. Let's read it. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, before we get to the complexities of this, let's just state, this really is an incredible promise from Scripture, that even in all your suffering, because notice it says, in all things, God works for the good. Even in your suffering, God is working for the good. Now, also notice, this is a promise that is exclusively for believers in Jesus, because it says, for the good of those who love him. So let's talk about this, because sometimes it's easy to see how God is working things together, and sometimes it's not easy at all. In fact, to kind of frame our discussion this morning, uh, what I want to give you is three different timelines for how we understand suffering. Here's the first timeline. Suffering that we understand quickly. Suffering that you can make sense of rather quickly. Sometimes you can actually know almost instantly the reason why you're suffering in life. Let me give you an example of this. Let's say as a young adult, uh, maybe you are a young adult, let's say you are at work and you lose your temper on your boss and you just let him have it, right? You just rip into him and then you are promptly fired. And as you're walking out to your car, instead of hanging your head, you already know the reason that you're suffering. Lots of times when we know the reason quickly, it's related to our own foolish choices. And this, by the way, is not to say that all suffering is a result of sin. Sometimes it is, let's just say that. But sometimes it's not, right? John chapter 9, if you want to read that, is a good reason for sometimes why it's not related to suffering. Other times, God just seems to resolve things kind of quickly in our life, and we can go, oh, that's why that happened. I'll give you another example. Okay, let's say you're dating someone, and you were dating them, and you had this tragic sort of gut-wrenching breakup, and it was so painful. And yet, let's say the very next week, you end up meeting the love of your life, and you get married a year later, and they're just a strong believer, and it was just this wonderful thing. You could look back then and say, okay, that breakup, that suffering, that horrible week was because It happened so that I could meet this incredible person. In all things, God works for the good. Okay, that's that's that first timeline. However, I think in that first timeline where suffering just kind of makes sense rather quickly, that tends to kind of be the exception to the rule, right? More so than the norm. I think for a lot of our suffering, if we're honest, we don't understand how God is working for the good until... Years, sometimes decades later. And that's the second timeline. The second timeline of suffering is suffering that we understand or that we can make sense of later. Biblically, I think this is really well explained in the story of Joseph. Um, That's the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. This is an incredible place to read in Scripture. One of my favorite parts of the Bible. If you're looking for something to read uh, this week, it's Genesis 37 through 50. Although I'm about to give it away to you right now, so maybe not. But Joseph. His brothers, he has lots of brothers, and they are so jealous of him. In fact, so jealous that they throw him into a pit. And then they decide, you know what, let's just sell him into slavery. (laughs) That sounds really nice. And so they sell him into slavery and he becomes a slave in Egypt. Well, he manages well enough at first until he's wrongfully accused of something and thrown into prison. And there in prison, he sits forgotten. It's just suffering, 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 suffering. Well, Eventually, one day, word gets out that Joseph can interpret dreams through God, and Pharaoh calls him to his palace. And Pharaoh has this dream that Joseph interprets to say, okay, seven good years are coming, followed by seven years of famine. So Joseph then gets uh, promoted out of prison to be the right-hand man to Pharaoh, and he helps Egypt store up crops, and he eventually saves Egypt from ruin during the famine. Well, Joseph's brothers eventually come from Canaan where there is also famine and they're begging and they're starving looking for food and it's Joseph, their brother, that they sold into slavery that ultimately saves them from their death. And while he's saving them, he says this to them and this is an incredible verse from scripture. Genesis 50 verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, we believe as Christians that God is in control and that he's working out his sovereign plan, that he works for the good of those who love him. But like Joseph, often we don't understand what that good is until years and years and years. This is a long time, decades probably later. Now, that's a real sort of cursory understanding of suffering we understand later. However, I think it's important that we dive deeper into the scriptures here so that we don't misinterpret this verse, because I feel like this is a verse that gets abused a lot in the church. In fact, I think one of the most pressing heresies in the American church nowadays is this false idea that God's main purpose is to help you live your best life which is really just the prosperity gospel repackaged in a new day. And so sometimes people read this verse and they think, okay, well, this is what it means. I didn't get the job that I applied for, but that's only because God has a better job in store for me. Or sometimes I'll hear people say things like, okay, we didn't get this house that we put an offer on and we just so had our hopes in, but it's only because God has a Better house in store for us. God works all things for the good. And when I hear those things, I think, maybe, maybe not. Actually, here's something you won't hear at a lot of churches, but this is from the scripture. God might actually want you to get a lower paying job next. God might actually have you move into a house that's going to completely fall apart in the next year. And you say, What? Why would God do that? People struggle with this. When these things happen in their lives, they go, how can I believe in God? Because we're living under this heresy that God is here to improve my circumstances, to make things better. You say, how could that be God working for the good? Okay, well, look deeper at the scriptures. We can't just take a verse, rip it out of its context, and try and apply it to our American lives. We have to look at the context of scripture. So let's actually read the next verse. No one ever reads 829, right? We just do 828. Well, let's look at 29. 29 says this. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed, to shaped, changed into the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Okay, let's put it together. God works for the good, and what is that good? Well, the first part of the good we're gonna we just saw here in verse twenty-nine. I'll explain it, and then second, we'll see in verse thirty. So, verse twenty-nine. If you're still looking at it, it says. God works for our good by predestining us. Predestining us to what? Determining us to do what? To be conformed into the image of his son. So that's saying God has planned, he has determined that you, his follower, will start to look more like Jesus, that you will start to act more like Jesus, think more like Jesus, speak more like Jesus. In fact, that Greek word Paul originally wrote of Romans in Greek Uh, The Greek word conformed is symorphos, which shares a root word with the word metamorphosis. It's this idea that God is promising to you his eternal plan is that he is going to change you. He's going to work things together to help shape you to become more like his son Jesus. And God is not necessarily promising you better circumstances here. I think too often in our culture, this is not true of a lot of other cultures or other cultures in history, but too often in our modern American culture, we equate the word good with comfortable. A comfortable circumstances in our like health or in our marriage or food on the table. But remember who was writing this. Paul actually didn't have any of those things. You know, he never got married. He struggled with his health for much of his life. Sometimes he didn't have food on the table, but God was working for the good, conforming him to look like Christ. I mean, isn't it at least intellectually intriguing that Paul, who's the man that many call the greatest Christian of all time, the one who looked more like Christ than any of us, also suffered more than any of us on his way to looking like Christ more than any of us. Why do we question our suffering so much? Do you remember who uh, Elizabeth Elliot was? Uh, I've mentioned her a few times. Uh, She was the wife of Jim Elliot, who was martyred in South America, trying to bring the gospel to some of the tribes of the Amazon rainforest. Elizabeth actually later, if you read her biography, went in to that same tribe that killed her husband with her toddler and shared the gospel with them. I mean, that's, come on now, (laughs) that's intense, right? Right. Elizabeth her life continued to be difficult. In fact, eventually God, this is an amazing blessing, she gets remarried, but then her second husband dies only 4 years later of cancer. And Elizabeth Elliot, who was this prolific writer actually, once said this, look at this. She says, "God will not protect you from anything that will make you look more like Jesus. It will make you more like Jesus." He won't protect you from that because what's, his, what's the good? It's to conform you into the image of the Son. In a second, let me share with you another quote. This is from John Newton. John Newton wrote what probably is the most famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. And he writes Amazing Grace about the forgiveness of Jesus because I don't know if you know this, but John Newton was a brutal slave trader. And Jesus Christ forgave him and changed his life. And then he writes Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. And while reflecting on this concept that we're talking about today, he famously wrote this. He said, everything is necessary that God sends, that God would bring into your life. It's necessary, right? It's not like God's going, oh, whoops, didn't mean to have that one happen. Everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. And so sometimes you think about our lives, we, in our suffering, we've grown out. We do. We all do. I do. Sometimes I feel like I whine like a little child to God. Why me? Why would you do this? Why would you withhold this from me? Why would you bring this in my life? You're supposed to work for my good. But remember what your good actually is. It's to be conformed to look like Jesus. Let me tell you something. God will sometimes withhold things from your life that you have determined would be so good if you got. But he is withholding them precisely because he, know that, he knows that if you got them, it would only serve to well up pride and selfishness in your life that would eventually lead to your ruin. And so he withholds it from you. God sometimes will allow things to come into your life Because he knows that the brokenness that will result will shape you into looking more like Jesus than any success ever could. God is not committed to making you happy. God is committed to making you look like Jesus. They're not the same thing. And yet I would say looking like Jesus is probably a far deeper joy anyway than just circumstantial happiness. And see, it's it's due to the nature of this process, just how long it takes to conform us into the image of the sun, that sometimes it's not until even decades later that we can look back and go, okay, I see what you were doing. Now, I wanna pause before we get to our third and final point here on the timeline. And what I wanna do is I actually want to share with you some stories of some people who have had God working in their life through good and bad, through the ultimate purpose. And so our baptismal team, there they are. Uh, (laughs) Just came out of nowhere. Um, My heart skipped for a second. I thought I was being attacked. Okay. Um, They're here (laughs) because we're going to share some testimonies. And we're going to see some baptisms of people who've made a decision to follow Christ. Now, baptism does not save you but it is a reflection, it is a symbol of what happens when a person says, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you died for me, and that faith is what washes us clean. And so we're baptizing four people throughout the morning. We have two at this service, so special delight for you here at second service. Now every person you see baptized at our church is baptized by two sponsors. Those sponsors are people that have had a deep spiritual influence on their life. And so uh, we are gonna begin, so Alex and Kelly, you can. Come on up, and I will get your microphone.
1: My name is Alex. I'm 28 years old, married with two kids, and renovation has been my home church for about seven months now. I've lived in Blaine my entire life, having spent the first half of my life on the east side of Highway 65 and the latter half on the west side. So chances are if you're from Blaine or live in Blaine, you'll understand me. I grew up the way that I think the majority of millennials from the suburbs grew up. Not particularly religious, but morally obligated to be a good person. Always putting my faith in myself before faith in God and believing that I can be anyone or anything that I can dream of through hard work and dedication. I was a three-sport athlete by the time I was five years old and continued to be a three-sport athlete throughout high school. So naturally, a competitive drive has always been a part of me. You might say I've never known any other way. But eventually, my competitive nature developed into a persistent nagging voice in the back of my head, telling me I wasn't good enough, that I would never be good enough. This affected every facet of my young life, from academics to sports, and friendships and relationships. And in time, that nagging voice turned into full-blown anxiety and depression, which I just couldn't comprehend, and I wouldn't validate. I would tell myself I had no reason to be depressed, or that I would just tough it out, and that was always my answer, just be tougher. Fast forward 10 years and give that kid with the same, I can fix this on my own mentality, a wife, two kids, and a mortgage due, and you have me about six months ago. My adult, my adult life looked like the standard American dream, but what you don't see is the mountain of failures and abandoned, <clears throat> abandoned dreams behind it. Stress and depression was, were just part of my life. I had learned to ride the ups and downs, which foods would give me heartburn, and I would take a multivitamin every day in hopes that things would just get better, but they never really do. The good days just don't feel so good anymore, and you're always left wanting more, feeling empty. Um, And the bad days will bring you to your knees not wanting to go on on with life. It's the definition of pure helplessness, a complete loss of control. Around this point in my life, my good friend Austin behind me, who had... uh, been one of the only consistent Christian friends in my life, invited me to his child's dedication service at renovation and again to his baptism. I was your typical consumer Christian for most of my life who never really took my faith seriously. I would go to church when I felt like I needed a boost and I wouldn't go when I felt like I had been a good person lately. But there is something special about renovation and seeing the proof of God when you walk through these doors and hearing, hearing it in the testimonies. It just grabbed me and wouldn't let go. I knew that whatever it is that Austin has or Briggs has or any of the other fellow Christians I see in the lobby, my soul needed it. April 25th, the sermon was, Who Is Your Life For?, in the Lost and Found series. David's message hit me like a ton of bricks, and on the verge of tears, I stood up to his call to faith because I I knew those were God's words tailored perfectly for me. I am surrendering my life to you, God, because I know I don't deserve the throne. You do and I know that the death of my pride and selfishness will bring true meaning to my life. With my eyes fixed on you, God, I know I have no reason to be anxious, and my suffering is not pointless or in vain. I will build a new life upon the cornerstone that is Jesus because I know there is no better place to be than in the will of God. Behind me are two guys whom I grew up with that have been absolutely crucial in my journey, Austin Wetzel and Briggs Fussy.
2: Hello, my name is Kelly Becker. Um, I married to my husband, Alex, who just got baptized. (laughs) Um, Growing up, I went to an Eastern Orthodox church. Um, I'd always believed in God, but looking back, I feel it was more out of fear than love. I never truly understood what it really meant to be a Christian. Although my parents did their best to help me grow in my faith, I never felt truly connected and I just felt lost with no real answers. It wasn't until my cousin passed away from leukemia that I really started to question my faith. Instead of looking to God, I shut down and coasted through life. During this time, I would occasionally go to church with my in-laws at Horizons Church. There I found more answers and a new way to worship that better suited my life. After having our two kids, I was feeling good again and ready to do better in my life. Still in this moment, I had put everybody else but God first. I was feeling great and the best I had ever felt. I was still feeling an emptiness in my heart no matter what I did. Shortly after that, in March, we were invited to Renovation Church, and in April, both me and my husband gave our lives to Jesus Christ. I remember David giving a speech and asking, who do you live for? And right then it all started to make sense that I was living for everybody else and not for God. I was always halfway in with my faith. I finally truly understood I couldn't do everything on my own and I needed to put my faith in God. Not every day is perfect, but I no longer feel the emptiness and I feel peace knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross to take the punishment for my sins and everyone else's. I know that I can't change myself on my own. I need to slowly let God change me and just trust in me, or just trust in him because he knows all things. Since I have given my life to Christ, I've seen changes in my life in so many ways. I have a deeper understanding in my faith, and I am involved with the church community to connect and grow my faith even more. Coming to church means so much more than just listening to a sermon. I feel so much joy and meaning in my life. I finally feel the peace that I had never felt before. My sponsors behind me are Maria Wetzel and Brittany Fussy, and they have been with me through this journey the whole time.
0: Amen. Uh, I know it wasn't that long ago, but um, I, I vividly remember the two of you coming to Christ together and standing up together. And um, it's, uh, it's powerful when you see a husband and a wife make the, I'm sorry, I'm not emotional like ever. Uh, <laughs> it's powerful when God does that together. And it is powerful for their kids. I always think that's the, almost the most powerful thing, just the the, sorry, I don't know. It's just the, uh, man, the destiny, the future of the whole family is shifted because of the grace of God. And I'm just thankful for that. So man, I got to recover. Okay. Um, So we've looked at these two timelines and you see even part of it in these stories, you know, that God works even through the suffering to bring us to glorious moments like this, But there is a third timeline, and this is a hard one. And the third timeline is the suffering that we won't understand this side of eternity. This is really important because some of the things that we go through, that just won't make sense to us until we meet God face to face. Like, why does a child die in their crib? Why does your mother get dementia How do you lose a family member in a car accident? It's like even when you take into account all the other truths of scripture, right? Like our creation is broken, like we talked about last week. There are sinful people enacting sin on each other. It's us, right? We're told in scripture that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion trying to wreak evil havoc on our lives. But even with all those things, some things just will never make sense this side of eternity. And listen, we do spiritual harm to one another when we look at the deepest of someone's sufferings and we say hey no worries it'll make sense soon it might not not in this lifetime anyway remember earlier when I said when we say these things that God works for the good that we've got to look contextually and the first is in verse 29 and the second reason of good is in verse 30 let's read it Paul says and those he predestined he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Some of those words you might know, some of them you might not, but what he's saying is this, that God is calling you to himself. And God, through your faith, will justify you. To be justified means to be made right. Your faith has washed away all of your sin. Something that your good works could never do. You can never be good enough, but your faith is what washes away your sin, and then eventually we are glorified. That's what we talked about last week, that when we die, we don't keep these fragile bodies that we're redeemed with a new body in paradise, living in heaven with God forever. And that helps us because then, even if the worst should come, we succumb to death, that all of our momentary sufferings are far outweighed by the glorious good that God will bring into our lives. And see, it's in that future place where doubts will be erased, where confusing storylines will now make sense, and that definition of for our good will completely make sense. But I know too many people that they look at the evidence that they have thus far in life, and they declare that God is not good, and that their suffering has been too much, and therefore they could not trust and follow God. In a sense, they tap out, before they see the resolution of all things. And I just, I wish, I wish, I wish that I could just help them see that our perspective as humans is limited. I read this years ago. I was reading some about shepherds. The Bible talks a lot about that metaphor. And I remember learning, this has always been helpful to me. I remember learning that British shepherds often will take their sheep and they will put them into a, a dipping trough, like a huge fat filled with antiseptic liquid. And then the shepherd, what they have to do is they have to completely submerge each one of the sheep, holding its, its ears, its eyes, its nose completely under the surface. And obviously that's a completely terrifying moment for the sheep, right? It's kind of sad. They even bring the sheepdog along, and if the sheep tries to get up, they have the dog snap at it and bark, so it goes back under. But as terrifying of an an experience as it is for the sheep, without the periodic treatment, they would succumb to disease and parasites and eventually death, and so it is for their good. But think about this. This is never gonna make sense to the sheep, ever. No sheep is gonna five years later go, you know what, I figured it out. (laughs) Uh, it's, It's literally never gonna make sense to them. Because their shepherd's ways are higher than their ways. His thoughts are higher than their thoughts. And my friends, there will be things in your life that there just in, isn't going to be in, on this life, an easy one-to-one, Oh, that's why that happened. You won't be able to make sense of. But that doesn't mean that the good shepherd isn't working for your good. You may even be here this morning and your life has been really hard. Maybe it's part of the reason why you're here. And you're looking at some of these people and you're listening to stories going, how can they believe in God when they're suffering? You know, one of the reasons that we can is because our Jesus, the one who is calling out to you right now, he knows and understands suffering. Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he came to earth and he lived a perfect life. And for that perfect life, they killed him. They arrested him. They beat him. They mocked him. He suffered an agonizing death as they pounded nails through his hands and through his feet. And you may look at that and say, what good can come of suffering? I would tell you the greatest good can come of suffering. This is the great truth of scripture, John 3, 16. It tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's exactly what you were just hearing about from Alex and Kelly. That is their faith in Jesus, that he died for their sins. They were never going to be good enough. You can be as competitive as you want. You can try as hard as you want. You'll never be good enough because you always have your sin. And our sin is deserving of God's holy wrath and his justice. But God loves you so much that Jesus Christ came and took that wrath and justice for you. And it is your faith in that. It's not being good enough or getting your life back together. The great promise of the Bible is it's your faith in that that washes away every sin that you've ever done. And the promise is deeper. He promises you, what did it say? That you will, you will not perish. That means you will not suffer in hell, but you'll inherit eternal life, life forever with God. And you get a relationship with Jesus who rose from the dead and can come into your life and change your life just like you just heard about. And we heard about it earlier at first service. And we're gonna hear it again next service. And God is doing that in people's lives every single week. And I wonder, do you know he can do that in your life? Will you let him in? He is calling to you. He's knocking. Will you let him in? And it's as easy as saying, Jesus, I believe that you died for me. I want to receive you in as the leader of my life. That's how we say it. Because you can't say, oh, God, I forgive me, and then continue on with your life. It's saying, if you really saw all of my sin and died for me, then I want to live for you. I want to turn my life over to you. And it's a simple choice that will revolutionize your life. And that's the offer before every single person in the whole world as soon as they hear it. And maybe you're hearing it for the first time or maybe it's making sense for the first time. You could have been in church your whole life and it's just making sense. But I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that right now. So let's just have everybody in the room just for a minute. Would you just close your eyes? God is calling out to you, asking you to make that decision. Will you believe that his son came for you? Will you turn your life over to him? That's how you're forgiven. That's how God comes into your life. That's how you inherit eternal life, through your faith, not through your good deeds. And if you never made that decision before, you can make that decision. And I, wanted, I, wanted, I want you to do this. in just a minute, I'm going to have you do just what Alex and Kelly described that they did, that months ago they said, yeah, we stood up in the service. And as a way to mark this moment in your life, what I'm going to ask you to do in just a minute, everyone has their eyes closed, so this is between you and God. But as a way to mark that moment, I want you to just quietly stand up where you're at. To say, yes, this is me. I hear you calling to me, God. I am inviting you in to be the leader of my life. I want to be forgiven and follow you. So that that is you, and you can feel it in your heart right now, that that is you, and you need that in your life to give your life to him. I want you right now to just... Quietly stand where you're at and accept that forgiveness of Jesus. Go ahead. Wherever you are in this room, maybe even still thinking about it, you feel yourself on the fence right now. If you feel like this is the time, I need to stop running, I need to surrender, I want you to just boldly in faith trust in God, and just stand where you're at right now. give you a couple more seconds. All right. I don't see anyone in this service. You can open your eyes now. I, I want you to know that if you're kind of hearing this through the stories, through the teaching for the first time today, that... You don't have to make this decision in church. You can literally be driving home past quick trip this morning and go, God, I just need you in my life. I invite you in. I believe you died for me. I want you to be the leader of my life, and he will come in, okay? That is the great offer of faith. God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you, and that is the good news. And because he loves us so much, we can trust him in all things, even when times are hard. All right, let me pray. God, we thank you for what you're doing in this church. We're so encouraged by these stories. Um, God, give us more faith to trust in you, even in our suffering, to trust that you are the good shepherd who works for our good. We love you. We thank you that you love us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.